the population of London grew at a rapid rate in the 19th century, and the city soon ran out of places to bury its dead. The answer was the creation of huge suburban cemeteries around the edge of the capital. Their grand monuments and more modest headstones connect us directly to the past, giving us compelling clues to fascinating lives. One local historian, Mike Gilfoyle, has made it his mission to uncover some of the extraordinary tales that lie behind the epitaphs of the Brockley and Ladywell Cemetery in South East London. More than 150,000 people are thought to have been buried in this leafy, peaceful resting place. Some famous in their day, some infamous, many deserving recognition once again. These are the stories behind the London epitaphs. The grave of Adeline Tanner is in a sorry state. Broken pieces lie in the tall grass, her name half obscured by brambles. I went looking for it after reading Bridget O'Donnell's compelling Victorian history, Inspector Minahan Makes a Stand, The Missing Girls of England. Adeline features briefly in the book as one of those missing girls in the title. Knowing that she had lived in the area, I was determined to find her last resting place. Eventually, after checking and cross-referencing burial records, as well as laborious physical searches, I found the tumble-down monument bearing only her name and her date of death, 1890. Although her personal story is harrowing, she played a significant, if involuntary, role in a wider reform movement in Victorian England. It also reminds us that neither sex tourism nor human trafficking are modern phenomena. Adeline's experiences could be lifted out of the 19th century and placed seamlessly into our own modern age. The story starts in 1878, when Adeline was just 18 years old. We know that she was in service to a household in Clapham and that she either left the job or was let go from it. Soon after leaving her job, she took herself off to town for a walk along the Tottenham Court Road. Here she was approached by a well-dressed man named Sully. As they conversed, she told him how unhappy she was in her current jobless situation. He told her that he might be able to find her work in Paris and that she should join him for a drink in a tavern and a little walk. In the tavern, she was introduced to another wealthy-looking man who was named Edouard Roger. Adeline was given drink after drink, and at one point in the evening, Sully took her aside and told her that Roger seemed interested in her and that if she went back to Paris with him, he would marry her and that she would live in wealth and comfort. Adeline, an unworldly teenager and unable to think straight from all the alcohol, was talked into spending the night at a strange house in Victoria Street. In the morning, she was deprived of solid food and instead plied with more alcohol before being taken in a cab with two other girls to Victoria Station. She was handed false papers, which gave her an age as over 21, and her name as Ellen Corden, and told to use them from then on. Adeline didn't know it, but she was a valuable commodity and was being traded in such a way that it would be very difficult for anyone to find her once she was abroad. Adeline ended up in Brussels, not Paris, and imprisoned in a brothel where she went on to suffer what she later described as indescribable torture. She could turn to no one for help and her situation must have seemed hopeless. The social reformer Alfred Dyer, a Quaker who went on to rescue many kidnapped girls from prostitution abroad, 
What a brutally honest expose on the trade in young women. His book, The European Slave Trade in English Girls, published in 1880, gives us a shocking insight into what Adeline must have endured. The female inmates of houses of prostitution are in a state of veritable slavery. From the day they enter these houses, they are not allowed to wear their own clothing, but are forced to accept garments of a disgusting nature. For the hire of which, and also for everything they require, they are charged exorbitant prices. They are thus kept deeply in debt and terrified with the threat of imprisonment if they dare to attempt to leave without paying. They are frequently brutally treated and beaten if they show any signs of insubordination or resist the wishes of the profligates who frequent the houses. Moreover, as the letter of the law forbids the reception of girls who are minors, such girls are registered by their buyers or betrayers under false names with false certificates of birth. With or without the convenience of officials for which registration the girls are liable to imprisonment for forgery. A penalty which the keepers of the houses hold over them as means of maintaining them in subjection. Dyer's account of the callous methods used to keep the girls economically beholden to their captors finds echoes in similar practices in modern-day slavery. Adeline may well have remained another lost girl, forgotten about and uncared for, had it not been for two occurrences. Firstly, her false age and identity were discovered by the Belgian authorities, who promptly put her in prison. Incarceration gave her a respite from everything she had been subjected to at the brothel. Secondly, her story had reached the ears of Alfred Dyer via an Englishman who had been offered a 19-year-old English prostitute on a trip to Brussels. Dyer considered the information worthy of further investigation and in 1880 set off for Brussels with a team of concerned individuals who could help him extricate the girls from the brothels by subterfuge. One of them was an experienced rescue worker called Mary Stewart, and the records show that it was Mary who saved Adeline and brought her home to England. Adeline came back with nothing but her disturbing story of kidnap and slavery, including a chilling account of how she had been forced into a highly invasive medical procedure. But this is when her experiences, awful as they were, became a vital tool in the battle against so-called white slavery. Adeline's case would become the chief evidence in a major criminal trial against 12 keepers and managers in brothels in Brussels, including Edouard Roger himself. Adeline's testimony, along with the testimonies of other victims, was also put before a House of Lords Select Committee on the Protection of Young Girls. Among the prominent figures fighting the cause of these forgotten women was the outspoken women's rights campaigner, Josephine Butler. Butler devoted her life to fighting injustices against women, in particular two rather unfashionable causes. The call to raise the age of consent from 12, as it stood at the time, and establishing rights and protection for women caught up in prostitution. Butler was incensed by the lack of legal protection for young girls, particularly from poor backgrounds when it came to sexual exploitation. At the time, there was a flourishing child prostitution industry where young girls were traded around as merchandise, 
and Butler herself had seen very young girls bought and sold by so-called procurers who seemed to be getting away with it untouched. She pointed out to a royal commission on prostitution in 1871 that in the eyes of the law every female 12-year-old was considered a woman. This situation was shameful, she said, and Parliament should act to change it. Butler's campaign gathered momentum in the 1870s and she attended numerous public meetings to get her message across. Parliament was slow to do anything, however, and the age of consent was raised by only one year to 13, and it took four long years to reach that decision. There can be no doubt that Butler would have come across Adeline or known of her story. She had certainly heard first-hand accounts of what life was like for these traffic girls. She believed it was essential that the reality of their suffering became more widely known, however unsavoury society might have found it. In certain of the infamous houses in Brussels, there are immured little children, English girls from 10 to 14 years of age, who have been stolen, kidnapped, betrayed, carried off from English country villages by every artifice and sold to these human shambles. The presence of these children is unknown to the ordinary visitors. It is secretly known only to the wealthy men who are able to pay large sums of money for the sacrifice of these innocents. Josephine Butler had an extraordinary energy and drive and never let up in her campaigning. Her vivid accounts of the suffering of young girls contributed to the passing of the Criminal Law Amendment Act in 1885, which raised the age of consent to 16 and introduced criminal offences relating to procuring or abducting young girls for the purposes of prostitution. Despite this victory, the young victims of forced prostitution abroad did not always find a sympathetic reception on their return home. There is some suggestion that Adeline's story was disparaged by some commentators at the time, with detractors saying that she must have known what she was getting into when she agreed to have a drink with the two strangers that night on Tottenham Court Road. No wonder she preferred to spend the rest of her life away from publicity. Adeline died in 1890, around the same time that Josephine Butler was making headway in her campaigns. She must have been broken by her traumatic experiences because she died relatively young, barely 30, and in obscurity. Finding her grave brought to the surface a whole set of new and, and very unexpected questions. I discovered from the burial records that there were no fewer than six other people buried in the same plot between 1880 and 1910. Among them, Henry Hawes, Craven Green and his wife. Green was a celebrated artist specialising in theatrical scene painting who collaborated with some of the biggest names in the West End, including Henry Irving and Richard Doyle Cart. He was a very influential figure in the theatre arts and described on his death as the greatest of English scene painters. How did Adeline end up sharing burial space with this prominent artist? Could it be that in her last years she was charitably cared for by members of a local community? We know that Green lived in nearby Broccoli, where he was very attached to his garden in his latter years, and that Adeline was known to be residing in New Cross. Adeline died 20 years before Henry. In fact, the records show that she passed away the same year as James Henry Craven Green, who I presume must be Henry's father and who is buried in the same plot. 
It's possible, of course, that exorbitant funeral costs meant that shared plots were not unusual. Did the Green family know Adeline? Did they agree to share cost, or is it entirely down to chance that they ended up all being buried in the same place? It's sad to see the memorial in such a dilapidated state, and it would be wonderful to know that this unexpected collection of occupants might one day have their headstone restored. Perhaps a new monument would also inspire efforts to stamp out modern-day slavery and save its victims from the suffering that Adeline knew only too well. London Epitaphs was brought to you by Tempest Productions. 